This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years with expertise across income and alternatives. Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing and the markets. Lauren Brooklyn is taking a much-deserved break, and I'm thrilled to welcome Gregory Davis, Chief Investment Officer at Vanguard, and Barron senior writer Al Root as we talk about the Fed, where stocks and bonds might be headed, and we'll talk about a little bit about the auto worker strike as well. So, Greg, Al, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. Great to be here. So, hey guys. First off, I just want to say I'm very happy that September is over. It was another tough month for stocks and bonds, and that's historically been the case. Um, and, and I suspect that a lot of this just comes down to the Federal Reserve. At a September meeting, central banks bank uh, signaled that the economy will likely be stronger than expected and their rates will have to remain higher for longer. So, Greg, what was your reaction to the recent Fed guidance? The recent, uh, thanks for the question, Ben. The recent Fed guidance really was not that surprising for us. Um, you know, it's been our position for a while now that inflation, while it has come down, um, the Fed still has more work to do. And, you know, in our view, the market had been underpricing the probability that we're going to have higher rates for a sustained period of time. So, you know, at a very high level, again, it wasn't a big surprise to to our team and how we were thinking about the markets at this point in time. And it's not really just about higher for longer, right? It's also a question of how high. Um, I think one of the things that surprised me, I guess, was just looking at uh, the expectation in the dots that there may be another rate hike this year. Uh, how high are rates yeah. going to go? You think when all is said and done? Yeah. Well, if you take a look, uh, if you take a look at what the market's pricing in right now, it's basically a fifty percent chance that you're going to get a rate hike between November or December by another twenty-five basis points. I think there is risk, and we think there is risk that they could go a little bit further than that, another twenty-five to fifty, you know, all in, um, and then ultimately hold it there for a while, um, because again, they're still trying to get inflation under control, and we've seen a tremendous amount of progress on the inflation front, but it hasn't gotten close to their 2% target. So uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to us if we see one or two more rate hikes and then them hanging out at least until the uh, the tail end of 2024 before you see any type of risk of a, uh, a rate reduction. Now, now, at the risk of getting a little too wonky for our listeners, you know, there's this idea out there of the neutral rate and how high that needs to be. Can you explain what the neutral rate is and why is there this discussion going on about it? The neutral rate ultimately is the rate and it's it's um, it's the rate that, you know, in which the market, um, you know, is basically an equilibrium. Um, and ultimately, you know, what the Federal Reserve has been saying, and they've been targeting a neutral rate uh, of about 50 basis points. Um, and that's in real terms. Mm-hmm. And so if you take if you take um, 50 basis points of the neutral rate at 2 percent inflation, it brings you to a long term Fed fund rate of around two and a half percent. Our investment strategy group has done some research and, you know, given market dynamics, deficits and things of that nature, we actually think the neutral rate is closer to one and a half percent, 
if you add the Fed's 2% target on top of that, that would lead you to a long-term neutral of around 3.5%, which is 100 basis points higher than what the Fed is expecting or has been talking about. And then if you go back even further and you take a look at you know what was going on before the global financial crisis, and when we went back and looked at the period from 1988 to 2008, our star or that neutral rate was somewhere between two and a half to four percent. So, you know, if we get anywhere close to what we were experiencing before the global financial crisis, um, you know, there is risk that that long term neutral rate is going to be higher than what the Fed has been, um, you know, projecting. Got it. And the Fed always says that it's data dependent. Um, and it looked for, for a moment there like we were going to get a government shutdown. Um, we did it. And that would have meant no data. Uh, but now the, the government did get the stopgap bill uh, the Congress passed. So we're going to get our data this week, uh, particularly data this morning. So, uh, tell me, what can we get from all this job data that we have this week? Both ADP, payrolls, and et cetera. You know, when we think of, when we think about the jobs numbers, like, look, um, you know, the economy is definitely showing signs of slowing down. But we have to keep in mind that, you know, although the average, um, you know, the average job creation, average job gains we've seen over the last number of months has come down from, you know, over 300,000 the first part of this year. And we're averaging closer to 150,000. The key thing to remember, though, is as long as the economy keeps adding jobs at a greater rate than we're adding, you know, workers to the labor force. Um, the unemployment rate runs the risk of coming down. So even if we get down to 150,000 jobs, that's still above, um, you know, the rate of job seekers joining a job market. Um, and ultimately, that's going to have us, you know, in an environment where the unemployment rate stays at this level or or continues to contract a bit. So uh, it's something that we'll have to keep in mind and be watchful of. And, and yeah. Al, what, what are the numbers going to look like? So for we get several jobs numbers this week so you know we're, we're in this period you know amidst you know rising rates and and the fed and inflation and all these sorts of things where uh, bad bad data is good data so we've been averaging about two hundred forty thousand, excuse me about two hundred thirty thousand jobs added uh, per month over the last year you know the number for friday is one hundred eighty thousand jobs um so, you know, 180 is below 230 and anything below 180, you know, would probably give the idea that, you know, the Fed doesn't have to raise immediately or can maybe take the foot off of uh, the throat of the economy. So, you know, that's what people should expect for Friday. Tomorrow is JOLTS, my favorite acronym, job openings, something, 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 but job openings, JOLTS. You know, we peaked at about 12 million. That was when the labor market was really tight mid COVID. Now we're forecasted to be below 9 million. So this week, you know, the jobs picture, you know, if it shows moderation, you know, Fed rates are starting to work. We've been raising rates for about a year. Um, that's probably good bullish for stocks. And then anything that shows things are just a lot stronger for longer is probably slightly bad for stocks. That's my two cents on the overall picture of the uh, labor situation. Well, I'm, what I'm finding kind of fascinating right now. So we had the the bad September um, that uh, you know you often get. Now we've entered October, and there's a debate going on about how the market should do this month. Um, I know there were a couple of firms talking about whether September was just a seasonal thing or something fundamental was going on. Al, historically, how has September been for the stock market? Well, September always stinks, right? So September is one of the lousiest months. Um, it, it has a negative uh, return uh, over a number of years on average. You know, it goes down more than it goes up. 
that's a, that's an important you know metric to follow when you're looking at seasonality. October is much better. October is a decent month for the year, seasonally speaking. Now these are these are just sort of historical observations. You know, so it always depends on the setup. You know, so we peaked at the stock. We, you know, the stock market peaked, let's say, around July 31st, right? So August and September sort of week. And July 31st, we were all feeling very good about having um, a, a, a line of sight on when rate increases would stop and, and earnings would start growing again. And we started to get a little nervous about that. And the stock market has performed weekly. You know, I always think historically speaking, why October tends to be a better month and, you know, Q4 tends to be okay. It's because we start looking at 24. And whenever we look at the year ahead, we're always optimistic. Um, there's a number of ways to illustrate that, but we always start out feeling pretty good about things. We're an optimistic bunch. And then, uh, you know, reality will turn out however it turns out. So as we turn to 2024, we're looking at earnings growth for the S&P 500, uh, turning around from some earnings declines of recent quarters. So that's one reason to be optimistic about October. And then beyond that, it's just a question of was enough done in September to make investors feel like the, the market is washed out. Uh, but the, the answer to your question is October is better because it's better and September stinks because it's always stinks. <laughs> That's right. And I, I always wonder, too, about you get this tough September and then we get earnings season starting um, that, you know, it's going to be a couple of weeks from now when uh, J.P. Morgan and Citi are the first banks to report and they really get things going. Um, but what are, what are earnings looking like? So I'll start with this one. So earnings. Right. So we've had three or three or four quarters or two or three quarters of consecutive year over year earnings declines for the S&P 500. Q3, right now, the estimate for Q3 in aggregate S&P 500 is going to be down a whopping 0.1%, so basically flat. So it's always the rate of change. So that's that's a smaller decline than, than recent quarters. So, you know, the optimist would say, hey, look, we're, we're about, this is the bottom, right? And we're about to see growth from this point forward. Again, like I was just saying, um, right now, the estimates are for earnings growth in 24 versus 2023. Uh, so it depends on your positioning. This is the fourth straight month of, of year-over-year -year declines, but and that's bad, but we're forward-looking, so the declines are getting smaller. If you want to get break it down one more level, the biggest contributor to estimates going up is NVIDIA, right? Mm -hmm. the, the biggest decliners, you know, people that are seeing estimates get cut are like the chemical companies like Dow and Lyondell, uh, companies that are helping growth, like Meta, their earnings estimates are going up still, right? Remember, they stopped spending so much on the metaverse and fired people, so that helped earnings. And then the biggest thing that's a headwind for earnings uh, this quarter is like energy. Um, oil prices have started to go up recently, but over the third quarter, they were down about 10, 15 bucks compared with 22. So mm -hmm. that's how the market's breaking down. You know, like uh, if you want one more narrative from that, be able to go one more second. It's like, you know, the tech, the big seven, you know, NVIDIA estimates are still rising, energy is still a headwind, and it sort of like explains how we've been doing this year. Yeah. And, and Greg, I know that, uh, you know, you're looking out much further than one month. You're seeing hearing these uh, earnings numbers and about, uh, you know, a market that is, you know, driven by things like NVIDIA and Meta. Um, how is Vanguard looking at all this? Yeah, I mean, for us, I mean, we tend to we tend to look against um, we don't really spend a lot of time focusing on the short term, um, you know, market movements and things of that nature. And again, when we're talking to investors who are saving for retirement, if they're saving for their kids college education or saving for a house, 
at the end of the day, we're looking at long term, you know, what you can control is the cost that you pay in terms of the funds that you invest in. And then also being respectful of, you know, what do valuations look like in the long run? And so our investment strategy group does a tremendous amount of work with the Vanguard Capital Markets model, making projections. Much of it is driven by starting valuations. And so when we look at the domestic equity markets, so U.S. equities, you know, over the next 10 years, we're expecting returns somewhere in the neighborhood of around median returns of around 5% or so for U.S. equities. And if is, you start looking at, if right, you look is, at is international that equities, is that those real? are nominal terms. Those no, are nominal no, terms. Okay. Got it. Those are nominal terms. And then if you look at the international equity markets, you know, return expectations closer to 8%. And again, a big part of that is driven by starting valuations where we think in the U.S. marketplace, when you take into account the level of interest rates, you take into account inflation, um, you know, P.E. ratios in the U.S. still look relatively expensive given all those drivers. And so, you know, from our perspective, you know, it would just, you know, point to some caution in the U.S. market relative to some of the international markets. Yeah. One of the questions that came from a listener, uh, this comes from Jack. Uh, Jack was saying that there have been conflicting reports about uh, when PEs, uh, whether they have to drop back to kind of historical norms or can they be permanently inflated? Um, do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really good question. You know, it, it, the, when we look at it, part of the part of our analysis takes into account, um, you know, where you are in terms of interest rates and inflation. Right. Because it's not unusual to expect a higher level of P.E. ratio when you have relatively low interest rates. And that's something we've seen for the last 10 years or so. But now we're back to an environment where interest rates are more normalized. And so you would expect that valuations would reflect the fact that, um, you know, there are other alternatives to stocks. You can buy money markets today and and pick up a yield of five and a quarter percent, no risk. Um, And so you would expect that in that type of environment, you know, longer dated assets like equities, which are you know, unbelievably long duration type assets, the valuations would have to adjust for the fact that interest rates have gone up. And so, you know, can they stay elevated for an extended period of time? Absolutely. We've seen that, you know, in the period of low interest rates. But now that interest rates have normalized to some degree, um, there is a risk that you start to get back to more of a long term normal level of, uh, of P.E. ratio. One thing uh, one thing to add to that is it's always important and i agree with everything greg said it's important to to remember or to look at like inflation expectations over long periods of time and you can do that by you know if you want to be real sophisticated taking the tips uh the five-year tips or the 10-year tips treasury inflation inflation protected securities and subtracting the yield from um like the uh the regular five-year that pays a rate and that's inflation expectations if inflation expectations start to go up that's when it's most harmful for valuations, right? Because nothing happens fast, right? Um, you know, if we have 5% rates now and I tell you next year they're going to be back to one, well, then we have to have a different discussion about PE ratios. But if that uh, anchoring of inflation expectations going up, that's that's the worst thing for, for um, valuations. And right now, uh, we're still hanging out in that long-term two percentish rate. Like the Fed's, what does that mean? It means the Fed still has credibility. This is all a lot to say. Things move slowly on the PE front. Nothing has to happen, but but pay attention to inflation expectations because that's when you're going to get hammered if something changes. All right, so let's pivot here. Um, you know, Al, we always like to talk about earnings for the week, and this week is really light on earnings. The one that stands out is uh, Constellation Brands. Um, they've actually uh, been a beneficiary um, of Bud Light's issues uh, with Modelo doing quite well because of them. 
Um, they're expected to report this week. Uh, what do you see there? Uh, I can report I prefer Modelo to Bud Light, but that is strictly based on flavor. Um, <laughs> the other thing is a little fun fact. They own a lot of uh, 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 wineries in uh, Canada, including Inniskillen, which is ice wine. I'm Canadian, very proud of our ice wine. So uh, that's another reason I like Constellation. Um, so what am I saying here? That's a lot of nothing. They are expected to earn 336 a share. It's up from last year, last year in the third quarter, excuse me, or whatever quarter this is. Um, they're in 317, you know, a year before that, um, they earned less than three bucks. So this is a growth stock, you know, they, they acquire brands like Modelo. They got that in, uh, um, uh, solution to the uh, Anheuser-Busch deal, the, the antitrust stuff. And uh, they've done a really good job integrating brands and growing the business. So it trades at about 19 times. So this is a company with, you know, it's a staple, which has not been very good lately, right? People have wanted tech stocks and, and food stocks have not done so well because now we're spending on, uh, you know, experiences instead of stuff. Uh, however, you know, there's nothing quite like alcohol uh, in terms of the stability of that business. So, um, things should be pretty good. So this is your standard performing well, you know, beaten raise or what it takes to keep stock momentum going up. It's up about 8% year to date, which is not tremendous, but not terrible. You know, the full year guidance, which they do get is right now it's 1170 to 12 bucks. So what you want, you want to see a good quarter and you want to see that number go up and you want to see it go up by more than they beat. And that is, you know, that with a Modelo is how you can spend that earnings call. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing to see all these uh, stocks uh, that sell staples just do so poorly this this year. Uh, and uh, partially, I'm guessing that has to do some with uh, bond yields as well. Um, and so, Greg, I, I wanted to get your thoughts. You know, the, the 10 year is it keeps rising. Uh, I think it's up again today. Highest level since 2007. Um, what do you make of this? Uh, you know, this was the year that bonds were supposed to bounce back price wise um, after such a bad, uh, tough 2022 for the long duration. What do you make of, uh, of, bond, of treasury bonds here and adding that duration to your portfolio? Well, I think what, what you're seeing reflected in the marketplace is the fact that, you know, the Fed has communicated they're going to keep rates higher for a longer period of time. And, you know, the rate cuts the market was pricing in for, you know, early part of next year. And even some people had it priced in for the end of 2023, you know, are not going to materialize, um, at least according to the Fed at this point in time. And so we've seen some repricing. We've seen some um, continued strength in the economy. Um, and I think all these are drivers that are causing, you know, longer term rates to adjust. And so, you know, if we go back to our earlier conversation around, you know, R star and inflation and all those types of things, you know, if you think about a world where if you believe our view that R star is closer to one and a half percent versus versus half a percent, you add Fed the Fed's two percent inflationary target on there that brings you to a three and a half percent Fed fund rate longer term. And then if you assume some kind of term premium. Um, over the long run, you know, pre-GFC, the term premium was about 150 basis points. So that brings you to about, you know, 5% in terms of what the 10-year should be. So, you know, between 45 5%, we probably think the Treasury, the 10-year Treasury is fair. Um, but, you know, again, it's going to be driven by, it's going to be driven by how the economy continues to grow, whether or not we see inflation actually start to cool down, and how soon will the Fed start cutting interest rates. But, you know, I wouldn't say that 10-year Treasuries are cheap at this level. Um, they seem to be in a fair value band, 
Um, but if they cheapen north of 5%, you're probably starting to see some su- substantial value um, to longer duration, you know, treasuries. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, when people talk uh, about rates, they often talk about the possibility that uh, you get an overshoot just because things are going, uh, you know, momentum carries um, past where that fair value is. Is that built into your expectations? Yeah, it, it is. And then the other factor you have to take into consideration is, you know, investors have choices today, right? The investors have choices. Like you don't have to take duration risk if you don't want to. You can sit there and put money into a money market fund, earn five and a quarter percent with no duration risk. Now you're taking a different type of risk. You're taking the durability of your yield risk because if the Fed starts cutting interest rates, that's going to get reflected in money market yields almost instantaneously. So it's a trade-off in in how much risk you want to take. But investors can get five and a quarter percent and take no real principal risk to their investments. So I think that is a significant competing force to investors when they're thinking about whether or not it now is the right time to to venture further out on the yield curve. And, and is it worth kind of, uh, I, I know like the, the term barbell come, comes up, but like having some of that short-term and having some long-term so that, uh, you know, if rates do, uh, if yields peak, you know, you've, you've gotten those, but if they keep going up, you're still taking advantage of it at the short end? You know, it really depends on the investor. I mean, it does make sense for, you know, people to have exposure, you know, in various parts of the curves, but the big, the big driver the big driver, Ben, is really going to be a function of what their time horizon is and what their, mm-hmm. you know, entire portfolio looks like. Because, you know, the normal the normal benefit, diversification benefit that you get from owning bonds comes from owning longer duration assets, right, typically. Um, because what would happen normally in, in an environment where the equity market is selling off, you'd expect that, you know, the bond market were to rally. Um, and so the longer duration in that uh, on the bond side would be helpful versus money markets just going to provide you yield and no real principal return. Okay. Um, and are there areas of the fixed income market that uh, you see a lot of uh, attractive value at this point? Most of the most of the fixed income market looks fair to us. I mean, we've seen some pretty significant cheapening, um, you know, in the mortgage market that's starting to become, a you know, a bit more interesting. But, you know, the Federal Reserve is also sh- continuing to shrink their balance sheet. And there's always a risk that at some point, if they decide to start accelerating um, any of their sell down of the balance sheet that could put some continued pressure on on mortgage rates. Um, so that's a risk factor. But when we look across the different sectors, investment grade credit seems fair, um, provided you're not expecting a, re- a recession sometime in the tail end of, uh, of next year or beyond. Uh, if you do have a higher probability of recession risk in your forecast, then uh, corporate spreads probably seem a bit tight. High yield seems reasonable, um, but again, it view it depends on the view on uh, on on a recession, and then again, mortgages probably seems the most attractive at an outright level. But again, there's the risk factor of whether or not the Fed is ever going to you know accelerate the sell down of their mortgage portfolio. So you you mentioned the R word. Um, do you think we get a recession next year? Our view is that you will. There is a 70% probability that you get a recession in the next 18 months. With the most likely, our view is the most likely um, starting point of that recession would be in the second half of next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have a view in the next 12 to 18 months that um, that a recession will happen. Yeah, it's been uh, kind of amazing to watch uh, the, this recession not come and just the, uh, uh, the the economy hold up as well as it has. But of course, I think that breeds a little complacency, right? That uh, you start to feel like, oh, net one can never come. And then uh, then it does. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people have, you know, it's it's kind of like one of those scenarios where we've pushed it off and pushed it off. But, you know, again, if the economy doesn't start slowing down on its own, we know the Fed is going to be, you know, very thoughtful that they want to make sure inflation gets back to their target over time. And if that means they have to induce a recession and, you know, weaken the labor market to some degree, they will likely take that action if needed. Hopefully, hopefully it won't take a lot of action and we won't see much in terms of, you know, job losses. Um, but we think the Fed is going to be pretty persistent in terms of trying to get to their target. Uh, well, let's take uh, some reader questions. We have a bunch of them today. Uh, we have two that are almost the flip side of each other. Uh, Larry is asking about um, the, you know, uh, the fiscal policy and how it's much worse than at the end of the 70s. And, you know, can he asks, can one be confident that rates are anyone near the high? Joe, on the other hand, is wondering if the Fed is going to have to come in and use yield curve control to keep the debt manageable the way that um, the, the uh, that it had to in that 45 to 51 period. So, Greg, I'm going to throw that to you. Which is it? Yeah, or so, is it both? It, you know, it's an interesting question. You know, clearly, you know, in a world where you have rising deficits, um, you know, the marginal buyer will have to assess, um, you know, whether or not they're going to be stepping in to buy those securities relative to other options that are out there. So, um, you know, there is a risk that, you know, as, as long as we continue to run substantially higher budget deficits and our debt to GDP continues to rise, um, there is a risk that uh, you start to see, um, you know, the market reflecting that in terms of pricing. Now, in terms of, you know, yield curve control and things of that nature, that would be counterproductive to what the Federal Reserve is trying to do in terms of slowing down the economy. Um, if they're trying to get the economy to slow down, inflation to come down, yield curve control would do just the opposite to some degree um, by helping bid up financial assets and things of that nature, because you'd expect that the long end of the curve uh, would come down. That would impact mortgage rates and things of that nature. Um, so I our view would be, or my view would be that um, you would not see yield curve control in the U.S. Okay. Uh, Al, this one for you. Is Deer a good stock to buy right now? So uh, I will say a few things. Uh, one, I kind of like Agco these days better than Deer because, you know, it just did a, deer, a deal with Trimble. Uh, and they basically combine their precision agriculture uh, businesses. Now, precision agriculture is very important for both stocks, right? This is, you know, like a recurring type revenue and it helps with pricing and it saves farmers money. And this is things like, you know, precision application of fertilizers and pesticides. So you spend less money on inputs and you have a lower environmental footprint and, you know, put the seed exactly where it's supposed to be and have your tractor drive itself. So all this stuff is precision farming and it's a real nice tailwind for the entire industry. Um, and so that business will be better for Agco now that it's part of, that they've sort of formed this joint venture, this, you know, third party company that, um, that the two companies will own jointly. So, and Agco is a cheaper stock than Deer. So take a look at Agco now, Deer, or both of them in aggregate, right? So farm income in the U.S. is falling. Um, and if I had it off the top of my head, I would know this better, but let's just say we're going from like 180 billion in net farm income to 140 from 22 to 23. And the forecast from our friends at the USDA is for another drop in 24. So something below 140. Now, historically, that's a very good level, but it's still down. So we have these like cyclical pressures where we're all sort of freaked out. We, the Wall Street investment community at large is sort of worried that, you know, this is as good as it gets for, for the likes of deer. Um, it, I don't view it, I view it as a good 
long-term core holding, a top-notch industrial company in the US. So you have to ask yourself the question of when do I want to buy this thing? Do I want to buy it at a cyclical bottom? Do I want to see how the year turns out? Do I want to buy, um, you know, after estimates get cut for 24? Uh, if it were me, you know, I would always own, I like to answer questions like this this way. I would always own like some deer because it's a good company and I'm an industrial guy. So if I was running an industrial portfolio, I would have to do that. And then it would just be a question of whether I'm overweight or underweight. So I think deer is a good core holding. I mean, I, I don't think it's like uh, set up for a wild 2024, but um, mm -hmm. I'm not as worried as other people are. Okay. Um, all right. And Greg, um, I'm, maybe you can answer this one. What do you think does better in this environment, uh, passively managed or actively managed? I know that uh, Vanguard does have both. We, we do have both. And um, I'd say two things. One, you know, the first thing is that, you know, we de we definitely believe that there's alpha available in the marketplace. The reality is that, you know, most active managers charge too much for the alpha that they're generating. And that that also that ultimately res results in clients experiencing underperformance relative to, you know, a passively managed fund. So the challenge with active, you know, for many cases, it's very difficult to prospectively figure out the managers that are going to outperform. And then, you know, during those downdrafts, do investors have um, the confidence to stay with an investor that's underperforming so they can ultimately, hopefully, get some of that back over time. So we think, you know, indexing makes a lot of sense for, for many people. If you can get great active managers, and we have a number of external advisors that we think are world-class and adding value at an extremely low expense ratio as well. So we do believe there's alpha out there, and many of our active fund managers have, you know, produced outstanding results long term but investors again they need to have the patience and be willing to ride you know any downturns that happen so they're not you know they're not selling at the worst possible time when mm -hmm. performance is bad and they miss out on any rallies that might happen all right um so i want to turn now to al your favorite subject uh let's talk about autos what's going on with the strike and how is it impacting the stocks there well i've started to dream about the strike so we know that coverage has been, you know, our coverage is complete. That happens to me on occasion. I'm not actually joking. Um, <laughs> it's a so sign that you've been covering it too much and that yeah, uh, yeah, pretend that was coming. Yeah, I have dreamt about Elon Musk. I now I'm dreaming about striking workers. Now, um, I, I listen, I view my role to some extent is to just sort of give people context, right? And, and I find that means I'm playing devil's advocate a lot because especially now some of the numbers get thrown around, right? Like we won't be competitive. You're putting us out of business. Uh, you've been, you know, you've been step your, you know, your profits are on the backs of workers, you know, CEOs make too much money, which may or may not be true. So what we're trying to do lately is just sort of give people some context, right? About past wage increases. So this is a situation where I think three or four things are all true at once. Um, the UAW workers for the D Detroit three, uh, uh, took a big haircut in 2009 around the financial crisis. Remember, General Motors went bankrupt, so they have been, uh, you know, over, 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 you know, say 14 years, their wages have been going up. X, X profit sharing, so they do get that, have been going up about one percent a year. And as we all know, inflation is much higher than that now, so they want some catch up. And Ford and GM have had put together some very good years, so they want to see some of the givebacks that they gave to the companies in past contracts, like tiered wages, like 401ks versus defined benefit pensions, they want to get some of that back. 
Now, the companies are saying we're not more profitable than our peers, which is true and important, right? And we still have a labor cost disadvantage versus, say, Toyota and Honda that make cars in the U.S. with non-union labor forces. And we have to spend these billions and billions on electric vehicles, and we're not sure how it's going to turn out. We're not sure if they're going to be bought. So please, please, please give us a break. So both companies and workers have, you know, valid points. The reality, so, and, and it's not, the point is, so what does this mean? This is probably meaning, uh, the other thing that's true is this is the toughest labor negotiation of my lifetime with the UAW. Now I've covered the industry professionally for like 21 years. And then I lived in a town um, that was an auto supplier for many, many years. So like, this is about as difficult as it gets. Like, I can't remember stuff like this, you know, other than like 80s and 90s when they were losing market share to the, to the, to the Japanese automakers and foreign, uh, foreign transplants. So we should expect that the strike will not end soon, right? This is also only about 25,000 auto workers at about 145 are on strike. So the UAW can maintain this pace for a long time. There's still cars being produced so the automakers can maintain this pace for a long time. Um, so we should expect a long strike. I was thinking 30 days, Colin Langan at Wells Fargo thinks 45 days. I'm now edging my estimate, mental estimate up to, to more in the Colin Langan range. If things go like 60 days and you start seeing a long strike, yeah, wage increases of like 30% is the base case over the life of the contract, then you would start to say, wow, maybe I have to revalue these stocks. Mm -hmm. But we all know that wages are going up and we all know some of these things are going to happen. And the stocks trade terribly, by the way. They trade the, the best PE ratio is like four to six times or something like that, six times 2024 earnings. So anything in that sort of 20%, 25% wage increase with some, with some healthcare and retirement improvements and maybe the end of tiers, you'll hear a lot about tiers. Anything like that is like normal. And I would say you just go back to worrying about production and EV transitions and things like that. You don't really worry about labor costs and whether they can compete. So if, right. if, it's, a, if it's a normal turnout, no problem. Long answer. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. Now, I have one last reader question, uh, Greg. This is for you. Um, Lisa wanted to know um, if it's possible for a bull market to start when you're in a high interest rate environment and an election year is coming up and you have an aggressive Fed. Um, I guess it's a question we're all wondering because there was a lot of talk about this being, quote, a new bull market before. Any thoughts? It is possible. So, Lisa, thanks for the question. I think I think it is possible. The 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 bigger question is, is it probable? Um, I think the points that you pointed out are, you know, significant headwinds, specifically specifically the rising interest rate environment. If that continues to happen, um, we think that is going to be a headwind for you know the restart of a bull market. The other thing I would keep in mind is the fact that you know in if we have earnings that end up beating expectations, if they come at much more robust than what the market is pricing in, you know, that could be a great catalyst to see the bull market propel itself. But again, a rising interest rate environment where the Fed is pretty persistent and unlikely to cut rates for some time. I mean, that, we, we believe that is going to be a bit of a headwind for um, um, a, a restart of a bull market. All right. Well, thank you. And that is all the time we have today. So I want to thank you, Greg and Al, for being here. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us.
Join Barron's Live tomorrow when Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric J. Savitz, speaks with Stefan Slavinsky, Enterprise Software Analyst at Exane BNP Paribas, on the outlook for enterprise software stocks. Thanks for listening. Stay well and happy investing. Apollo is working to ensure a bright, bold future, financing solutions to some of the most complex challenges the world is facing. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com.